you're an early stage Web3 founder, apply to our award-winning accelerator program, Basecamp at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We write your first $50,000 check and give you access to 200 mentors, including many of the leading Web3 founders, and a network of 1,000 of the world's leading investors and exchanges. We've helped over 30 startups from 15 countries from all around the world, raise $130 million in growth funding, and can help you fast-track product market fit and, where relevant, the launch of your token economy. So today it's with great pleasure. I'm introducing Jimmy McNellis, founder of NFT42. Welcome, Jimmy. Hey, Jamie. Great to be here. So NFT42 is building a next-gen NFT on-chain minting platform, on-chain being the operative word, and we'll get into why that is important a little bit later. So reasons why I've got you on the show, obviously NFTs are going prime time right now, um, and there's, there's kind of a, a rush to figure out how to scale to meet the demand, lots of workarounds happening at layer two, but of course, lots of new solutions coming to market like Flow. You've been at the heart of kind of post-2017-18 ICO crash NFT community. Um, a lot of people kind of you know left the NFT space at that point or weren't paying a lot of attention to it. There was kind of this hardcore group of people that stuck with it. And uh, very thankfully, that's why we are now where we are today. And you are, of course, central to that. NFT42 is a kind of development studio shop for NFTs. You've also created your own franchise called Avatars. Um, you've run Token Smart, which is a community with lots of conferences and, and WIP meetups. I've personally known you since summer of 2020, I guess late summer 2020, I'm not sure, um, where I stalked you a little bit to try to figure out what was going on in the NFT space. You were very always very generous with your time. And I was always really impressed by your level of knowledge and technical understanding, not just of where NFTs are today, but all the considerations that we need to have to future proof them. So that uh, stalking resulted in you joining the Outlier Accelerator January 2021, which you've now just graduated from. Pleasure working with you and the team, but you've made huge progress. So definitely want to kind of talk through some of that today. But I think you're kind of best known as the appointed leader of the on-chain gang, which sounds very threatening, but actually is a a, a nice bunch, nice but vocal bunch of people from artists, creators, and, and developers that believe in the importance of on-chain, as I said, in that future-proofing of NFTs. Uh, and like really the, the kind of artists and creators that are in that on-chain gang are the most highly regarded, respected artists in the space because they are literally defining the medium. They are experimenting, hacking the medium of NFTs itself rather than just minting 2D images uh, and selling them for millions. So um, so let's go into your origin story. I'll, I'll maybe let you do it, but as I understand it, you know, you've got a pretty solid background in enterprise change management and innovation at Google and you founded your own, own company, but maybe you could kind of summarize that and then uh, and then we'll jump into... The, the story behind NFT42. Sure. Jamie, thank you so much for that introduction. I think we could probably just end the podcast right here. You've said all the things. <laughs> Mic drop. So, yeah. So in, in, in 2007, uh, I started a business that was based around Google Apps, which is Gmail, basically. We call it Google Workplace, Workplace today. And that uh, was a transformative technology where you could basically bring the power of Gmail into your business. And that grew into bringing many more Google enterprise tools into your business. And a lot of businesses use these tools today. But I was on the forefront of that technology innovation and movement around cloud computing and, uh, and these services being available online. And I ended up also working uh, through the success of my business and ended up working directly for Google um, for about four years of the seven years that I was running Dido. 
and helping them with their change management and business transformation strategies and helping them enable partners to provide these services and deployments to their customers. So having that exposure to a multitude of different uh, high-level uh, enterprise and government organizations uh, and being able to work with so many different uh, partners as well gave me a, a great exposure to what it's like to go through a technology innovation cycle. So coming into this with NFTs, uh, it's a, it feels very similar in that we're introducing new technology and it's going to solve problems for businesses and creators. And uh, we need to help them unlock uh, the value in this technology. Yeah, and I believe you know some of those kind of clients you worked with included the city of Los Angeles, city of Boston, New York Times, and I know you were additionally on the Google Partner Advisory Board and G Suite Deployment Certification Development Team. That's a mouthful. You're reading my LinkedIn right now. Yeah, yeah. No, I've already I've already read it. I memorized it. Right. So uh, hanging on my wall is certification ID number fourteen for the Google App Certified Deployment Specialist. Um, we actually helped write the test, so I'm not really sure, you know, how, you know, are you allowed to take the test you wrote? Um, so we helped write that test. Yeah, I was on the Google Enterprise uh, Advisory Board for several years as well, and all those projects you mentioned and more. Worked with this, uh, Netflix and Kaplan University and Whirlpool, many others, actually, in fact. It was really a great, great, great exposure across all of the different types of enterprise and government organizations. So I have a pretty deep understanding of how different companies and cultures work and how they go about adopting technology. And then basically I took, you know, I, I eventually exited my first business and um, decided that working at Google full-time just wasn't for me. Um, I took a few years off and then eventually started mining cryptocurrency, um, Ethereum specifically. And shortly after that, um, I found CryptoKitties. Um, my cat had run away and I needed a, a totem to uh, remember her by. So I bought my first crypto kitty. Two weeks later, my cat came back. So both both my kitty and my crypto kitty are safe today. Um, but that's that's how I got started in the space. All kitties have been returned to their owner and nice and safe. That's a, a happy ending. Um, and yeah, I think this this idea in the context of NFTs as well, not really talked about. I guess we, we will talk about it later. Is you know often NFTs right now are self administered. But of course, as new organizations come into the, to the market, you know, bringing with it billions of dollars of IP, the workflow of these assets, both from their issuance to the management uh, maintenance, is going to be increasingly important. So I guess that's going to stand you in good stead. Um, so let's talk about NFT42. So 2019, you founded NFT42. You know, within that, you kind of had various different activities, right? You, you, you had Avastars. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Token Smart, which is this kind of virtual virtual event. And you got, I believe you've got a big conference coming up soon. Um, and then the kind of minting platform that you're working on. But could you just give us the kind of genesis of NFT42? And then maybe a little bit later, we can talk about Avastars and the success that you've had. Yeah, absolutely. So... Uh... NFT42 basically was born out of um, a frustration uh, within the NFT community, um, primarily my own frustration, um, that my frustration with the NFT overall NFT community, that not enough innovation was taking place at the token design and token level. Like people were coming out with projects that were basically, you know, cheap copies of CryptoKitties or just low effort. Um, there weren't really a lot of projects in this 2018, early 2019 timeframe. There were some, but the ones that were coming out were really just trying to figure out um, how to make some money. Um, there were very few that were actually trying to figure out how to innovate on the technology. And as a collector and someone who was really looking forward to spending the rest of my life collecting these things, um, I wanted to make sure that there was something worth collecting out there. And uh, there were some projects that I was able to come around on the idea of how they were doing it was good enough for now, but I still felt a very deep frustration in um, a lack of uh, taking advantage of the technology that was in front of us. And uh, so, like you said, the 2017, 2018, 2019 timeframe after the big CryptoKitties boom uh, was a pretty dark time for a lot of NFT community space. There wasn't a lot. 
uh, of money being made. Um, everybody, you know, was talking about being here for the community and being here for the technology. And that was very true because anybody that was sticking around really wasn't here for the profits. There are very few people like Craig that were actually uh, making money. So for me, it was, you know, the genesis of NFT42 was really frustration and lack of uh, really high quality uh, NFT projects. And uh, Larva Labs, who created CryptoPunks, they released Autoglyphs, which actually did provide an on-chain NFT example. And that was the inspiration I needed to understand that if, if, the, if the OG NFT creators themselves uh, felt like on-chain was worth expressing in one of their uh, projects, then this was a cause like that I wasn't crazy because people were telling me I was crazy to try to put this information on the blockchain. You don't do that, Jimmy. And I was like, why not? It's a storage layer. So anyways, that's how we came about. Frustration. And uh, as a collector myself, I really felt like there was a lack of quality uh, in the NFT space because uh, creators were not focusing on what mattered. And that was preserving the, the information attached to these tokens. There's no point in putting uh, an NFT on a blockchain for hundreds of years if the information of, that it's attached to is going to disappear in you know a tenth or even you know, hundreds of that time. Yeah, and just for point of clarification, you mentioned Prank earlier. That's Prank C, who's a kind of creator, creator collector in the space, I guess. Um, so let's stick. Let's stick with the problem. Maybe let's expand upon it a little bit more. So you know, you referenced the fact that people were kind of just. Um, not really innovating. They were creating, you know, derivatives of crypto kitties. I mean, the same could be true today, right? It's just crypto punks. There's just new variations, aesthetic variations of crypto punks, but ne but Jamie, not as much innovation. Yeah, Jamie, I'm, I'm sad to report that in the two years since we've existed down, nearly nothing has changed. There are a few projects that care, and most of them don't. So, so tell us what's wrong right now you know so we've got let's let's call it gem one nfts because as you say not much has changed um we've got several platforms some of which are doing hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue um on a monthly basis um and most are still dependent upon ethereum you know, other than um nba top shots which is on flow what what's going on in the space and what are the challenges that the industry's facing that creators are facing that brands are facing when they want to create nfts well i mean in part this uh surge of new interest that's come in was much sooner than i think most people anticipated we are still you know over here and the analogy i like to use is we're still uh painting on cave walls with mashed berry juice um we're kind of at that phase of the technology Literally, it's just been discovered that, you know, this berry juice can be put on walls and create images. So in that context, like we have the entire way to go as far as like innovating on these things and what's missing today. I mean, today, the like you've already pointed out, 99% of NFTs are just like a picture or a media file and uh, it is referenced somehow in the token. And that's about it. There's an external link to metadata um or the image itself sometimes it's stored on ipfs which is good but please keep in mind that ipfs is basically like BitTorrent, and if you've ever used BitTorrent, you know that people have to seed things in order for it to be available um so if someone stops seeding a file then it's no longer available so we're not talking about ipfs isn't you know indestructible it's repairable whereas if you store something on a storage layer of a blockchain or a blockchain intended for storage um, in you, in most cases, you're never going to have to worry about if that's available. It's just going to be there on the ledger forever. So the, the big problems that we see today is that there's not a lot of care in what NFTs were originally conceptualized as by the ERC721 creators was primarily a proof of ownership uh, layer where you could prove you owned a thing. And that thing was not considered um, to be a part of the token itself. It was considered to be externally referenced. Um, it could be anything. It could be a, a home, a deed to a home, um, really any sort of non-fungible item. Um, but they didn't consider that NFTs were powerful enough that they could actually contain all of the information about the token and could also contain like information that uh, 
programs could interact with and uh, use in a trustless way across the metaverse. So really what the problem today is, is that the NFTs that exist um, aren't ready for the metaverse. They are only ready to be purchased and sold and showed off on these marketplaces and wallets that exist for the most part. Right. So they're pretty dumb, um, pretty static. And and not very useful. And not very useful, yeah. They're just kind of, as you say, sat, sat in a wallet. Um, they're not experienced necessarily. So could you just talk us through like how most NFT platforms function? Of course, you don't necessarily need to pick on one, but like there is a spectrum, right? Different platforms are doing... Are approaching this in different ways because, of course, with every action that happens on chain, there is a cost, um, and so often they are doing things off chain to remove the cost, to not add a point of friction to a user, especially when that user is increasingly somebody that might not even understand blockchains. So, could you but could you just unpack typically what that? process that minting process or that platform what happens beneath the platform the the experience that the average person will, will have yeah so i think there's a like you said there's a scale and a range so at the absolute lowest end of the scale if you are on a platform that uh is really only focused on creating the cheapest possible nfts as easy as possible for the creator and and that's the primary focus and in making it easy for them to sell it on the platform uh, those platforms or that platform is basically uh, just hosting all of the information about the token on their own servers and creating a NFT, your NFT collection on the same contract that every other creator on that platform's NFT collection is created on um, and doesn't give you very really any options on being able to uh, protect the information associated with the token in a meaningful way. If that company goes away, so do your tokens um, that you've created on that platform. So that's the lowest level. Um, and then somewhere above that, you have uh, platforms that are storing reference links to the information about the token on IPFS, um, interplanetary file system. Um, and that is like I described before, like kind of like a, a glorified Napster for file storage. and that's pretty good though. Uh, it's not the worst. It's better than not storing it on your servers. And then above that, um, you have projects that are storing the media information on either directly on the Ethereum blockchain or on a blockchain like Arweave, but they're still lacking some of the metadata information. And then above that, you would have something like what we build where we store all of the information about the token on a blockchain, um, media and metadata are stored on blockchains and persistent. Um, and that's kind of like the highest level of it all. Now, at every level of this right now, every project has to provide a centralized API that points into OpenSea or Rarible um, in order for them to derive the information about the tokens. So. What you're seeing on OpenSea on 99% of the 99.9% .9 of the projects, that information is being hosted by the project uh, that created the tokens. Um, it's not being pulled from the blockchain. In many cases, there is no information whatsoever to pull from the blockchain. That API is the sole source of the information about the tokens. So, it, you know, it's not hard to imagine that, you know, in five to 10 years, a lot of these projects that were created on these uh, centralized platforms that don't have a in direct incentive to keep these things alive after they've already been sold a couple times that, you know, a lot of these tokens can start to disappear. And um, as the metaverse evolves and NFTs evolve, you know, these early ones won't be very useful. And uh, so really, like, I think we're going to see a lot of hype die down around a lot of the projects that haven't put a lot of care of intention and intention into into creating excellent tokens. Yeah, and I think, of course, that 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 means they're open to manipulation as well, right? So on the one hand, there's the the the, the likelihood or possibility, at least, that they're not persistent. But then, of course, they're open to manipulation if there's that API there. That they're, they're less secure. The real problem here is is that creators coming into the space and brands coming into the space, by and large, don't understand the difference between all these different platforms and what. Uh, a good quality NFT is versus a bad quality NFT, unless 
they talk to the right person. And some of these platforms are trying to onboard extremely big brands and IP that um, are going to be very ill served if they do move forward launching without understanding what they're launching on. And we just saw uh, Takashi Maritaku uh, cancel his launch um, to reevaluate where he wants to launch his NFTs because he understands that uh, there is an importance in, in launching in the right place. And it's not just about creating any NFT on any platform. So practically, what are the benefits of that on-chain? So of course, persistence, and that would then imply more long-term value. But I know thing, for things like royalties, right, perpetual royalties, and effectively for the life of that asset in the open kind of secondary market off-platform, could you just talk us through like practically the benefits of, of on-chain? Yeah, I mean, you just touched on really a big one that's, I think, the first really big use case that people can tangibly grasp onto, and that's on-chain creator royalties. So the idea here is that a creator royalty um, can be uh, written to a blockchain. Um, it's not hosted anywhere. It's trustless information. And that marketplaces can automatically assign a portion of the sale to the royalty holders at the time of sale and, and distribute those fees automatically as well. And so when creators are coming into the space talking about, you know, capturing royalties, like what a lot of these platforms, what all of these platforms are failing to tell the creators is that that royalty only is only good for the most part on their platform. They don't have a way if somebody spins up a new platform tomorrow and sells these tokens, they have not provided a way for the token owners to continue to receive that royalty on secondary markets. Now, some of them do have deals with and setups with uh, OpenSea uh, where they're able to uh, pay that royalty back to the creators. Um, I know a lot of these curated platforms have taken the effort to do that. So I don't want to FUD and say that the, all the creator platforms don't provide royalties from OpenSea, but that this is a one-off case where they're actually working to make sure that's the case um, and or have created a direct contract for the, the artist to be able to set up and configure that royalty on their own on OpenSea's platform. With on-chain royalties, it's it, as long as the platform supports the standard, it's a EIP ERC standard, as long as the platform supports the standard, it will be respected and paid automatically with no effort on the creator's part. So it's a vast difference of trustless versus centralized royalties. Um, and I know for a fact that creators do not want to deal with having to track down uh, their royalties everywhere because it wasn't set up uh, properly by the platforms at the token layer. So that's one of the main things. Um, another thing... Just on that point, I guess that's amplified when it's a collaboration, right? So we're talking about a single creator right now, but the minute that it's a collaboration, that becomes even more messy. Messy is another word for not uh, feasible, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so there's that aspect of it. Um, and this just speaks to the broader part of like a trustless uh, ecosystem that we're building with NFTs. If you write all the information to the tokens, um, then the, and the information is trustless, then you can do much more with it with confidence and do potentially value creating activities with it that are tracked back and through the blockchain that just provides a different uh, economic layer to uh, collectibles and to NFTs that has really yet to be explored. So you can trust, you don't have to trust the information if it's stored on chain. That's the most important thing here, right? Like I can't say that enough. You don't have to trust the information if it's stored on chain. It's, either, it's on there and that information then can be interacted with by other uh, experiences that don't need to trust a, th a third party service to do it. So one example of this uh, is Crypto Kitties, when you, it, even though it's their own ecosystem, when you create a, the way you create Crypto Kitties is by breeding two cats together, and those cats have some genetics written to them at the token layer, and there's some magic that happens in the smart contract that combines these genes and probabilities and creates a brand new Crypto Kitty, um, and the reason that that's really cool is because that all takes place the genetic mixing and trait science and all that takes place on the blockchain in a trustless way. You're not sending that information into CryptoKitties and saying, here, make me a cat. And they're saying, here's your cat. 
you can actually see the interaction and see it being created. So that's a powerful thing. You can create a new NFT from from two existing NFTs. Is that what you'd call composability? Or is composability what can also then happen on top of that, right? So um, by virtue of a... It, so, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. It's, it is a, that is an example of composability. That's like first-party composability, right? Um, where like the, in this case, it was designed specifically for this purpose. And that's good. Uh, there should be things that are designed to be composable specifically for that purpose. But I think what you were leading towards there is that there's also another layer of composability. There's several other layers of composability, but there's one where this token now exists and uh, people found a way to actually put hats on top of the cats, kitty hats. Um, now you had to have a, uh, you had to have an extension installed in order to see this on top of your cat, but basically the kitty hat was an ERC-20 token that uh, would basically place a, a hat or uh, an accessory on top of image on top of your existing CryptoKitty. And that was like, that's an example of like permissionless uh, composability where the CryptoKitties team didn't intend for Kitty Hat's product to exist, but it did. And the people who own CryptoKitties got a kick out of that project and bought these Kitty Hats. And some of it went towards charities and things like that. And we were able to show off our hats on top of our cats. Um, and that, so that's another form of composability that didn't, the only like thing that was required there was the ownership layer, right? You just that proof of ownership. So there wasn't any additional information that the Kitty Hats was really interacting with um, other than that ownership layer. Now that's important, right? Because just to, just to pause on that point, and we're going to have to, we've got a lot of stuff to get through, but I kind of want to just like cl close off on that point, right? Because adding adding a hat on a cat is an easy example for you to get the head around you've got crypto punks with like crypto bodies now but if you if you can imagine that on a continuum that's how you can create the layers for the metaverse right so it could start out with one token it could be a cat with a hat in a house in a in a uh, in a plot of land in a district, in a city, in a country, um, and each layer can be added on top. And you end up with an NFT stack equivalent to the DeFi stack, right? And so I think, and that can only happen if things are on chain. Um, so let's talk about Avastars, right? So Avastars is your own generative art franchise. I believe that was kind of what you started out doing at NFT42. Can you just talk us through that as an expression of on-chain? Um, and, you know, by doing that project, how did that then lead you into this new initiative you're working on, which is the, the minting platform and what you kind of call an NFT canvas? Sure. Yeah, so Avastars was the, you know, let, let's show you guys what on-chain looks like project. Um, and what we did there was we took, uh, about 650 traits, uh, and we'll say roughly 400 of those are, uh, physical traits and then 250 are color traits. It could be a little different mix, but 650 traits. And we figured out that we could store the individual trait, uh, code snippets. These are, uh, scalable vector graphics, SVG images. We could store the individual traits directly on the blockchain um, owned by the smart contract and the color palettes, we could do the same. And with the base metadata about each of these, uh, we could do the same. We could just store it all once on the, on our smart contract. And then when someone creates an Avastar, uh, much like a CryptoKitty, we write a genetic string to that Avastar to the blockchain. That's the only thing that's written to the blockchain for each Avastar. But then we have the ability to render a complete Avastar image, SVG image, or a complete uh, JSON metadata file for any Avastar that is created based off of that genetic information. So there's a read call on the smart contract that says render Avastar. You put in the Avastar number, it spits out the complete SVG code file. Uh, if you could do the same thing for the metadata for it. And actually, OpenSea reads directly from our smart contract for our metadata on OpenSea. So that is trustless information on OpenSea in the case of Avastars. So what we did then was just put everything on the blockchain. Like literally, after an Avastar exists, we can go away and not exist anymore. And you can still go render that Avastar and render that metadata directly on the blockchain. Uh, 
And then in addition to that, we made a limited breeding functionality, which hasn't been released yet, called Replicants. And that allows you, each Avastar comes with one copy of each of its 12 traits that can be used one time to create a new Avastar. Um, and every Avastar is unique. You, there can't be two that look alike. So you can't just take one Avastar and create a replicant out of it. You have to use at least two Avastars to create a, uh, a replicant. And you can use up to five. Um, and what that does is that allows you to take individual traits from between two to five of these Avastars and create a replicant exactly how you want it to look. So there's no random breeding element like with CryptoKitties. Instead, you're getting an exact outcome, but you only have that, those traits to spend one time. So you have to be very uh, specific in what you want. Now, the cool thing about these uh, traits uh, that you can use one time is they're actually composable outside of Avastars as well. Now, I have no idea, Jamie, how the hell people might use these things outside of Avastars. Maybe I've seen one example actually where, you know, with us, Avastars are trait specific, or I'm sorry, gender specific traits. Like you have to, you know, create a male or a female. Well, some third party uh, community member figured out that these things actually work pretty well, even when you mix the traits between males and females. So it's possible someone could create an experience where you could have gender neutral Avastars that actually used and burned the traits in order to create this new project that wasn't directly created by us. Um, so, so that's what another example of composability where we've built in a usability of our tokens, a utility into our tokens that can be used outside of our experience. And if it is used outside of our experience, then those traits are now used up and can't be used inside of our experience. But it's really up to the user and the owner of those tokens how they want to use that composable mechanism in, in Avastars. Yeah, and and so the, you know these things are very literally the DNA of the open metaverse, right? And I think, and just to be clear, you know, avatars are effectively avatars. People use them as avatars. Um, you probably would have, if you're if you're kind of remotely following anybody in the NFT space, you'll probably see people are using one or two forms of avatar on their Twitter profile. It's either a CryptoPunk or or it's an avatar. Um, and could you could you just give us an idea of the 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 scale of volume that you're seeing here, both in terms of primary issuance and, and secondary sales? And then it'd be great to talk about how that Avastar Avastar's experience led you to begin to develop these effectively factory smart contracts, right, and minting platform like a canvas for other creators. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, we're a very, Avastars, while it has been very innovative, has been a very grassroots project. Um, and we're approaching a year old now. Uh, our birthday is on 420, actually. So maybe it'll be a couple days after this is released. Uh, and we uh, have sold 20,000 Avastars. There's 25,200 total. Uh, so we've got about 5,000 left to go. In series five, it's the final series. Um, and the project is basically funded uh, up until we joined the uh, your accelerator and then uh, did our funding round. Avastars funded all of our uh, experiments that we've done in the metaverse uh, from Avastars itself. Uh, well, I paid for Avastars. Uh, I bootstrapped that project. Um, but Avastars ongoing development and support has been paid for by the project itself. Uh, the minting platform that we're creating um, which we originally released an alpha for about a year ago called Infinity, uh, was funded by Avastars. And then, of course, our, our community, Token Smart, which is the heart of the metaverse, was funded as well by the Avastars project. So we've quite literally, and we've hired within the community as well as we've grown. So really, Avastars has just continued to fund NFT42 uh, right up until... Um, we this January basically, it's really great. If you support Avastars, you're literally supporting the creation of the metaverse. It's a you know quite literal translation. And um, so earlier you were talking about this idea that most creators are limited to the kind of templates, the smart contracts of a given platform. Now what you've been doing is working on the ability to have custom smart contracts for particular creatives, and then effectively they then become like a factory smart contract that can be reused by other creatives. And, and that then forms this, this stack you've been building. Could you talk us through the kind of custom work that you've been doing with various artists, creators, and then how that is now assembling into this 
stack of technologies in, in the minting platform. Sure. Yeah. And so in creating Avastars, we realized, you know, it takes several hundred thousand dollars to create a good project that uh, is technically sound. And we wanted to be able to, to have a platform exist that needed to exist so creators could start to leverage these on-chain mechanisms um, without having to make that deep, deep investment and have that deep understanding at the technology level. So that's why we created the minting platform that we created. And then uh, we ended up through the months talking to creators and understanding their needs and then eventually working directly with some of those creators to uh, improve on even our ideas of what on-chain meant and what NFTs were. Um, and one of the first ones we did that with was Joy, uh, John O'Ryan Young, and we helped him create his Joy Toys project. Um, the big innovations there, uh, there's actually a multitude, but worth mentioning is we've taken away the idea that, first of all, like there are no limits, Jamie. That's the way we think of things. There are no limits. If people tell us you can't do something, that just means they haven't figured out how to yet. So what Enjoy very much doesn't think there are limits either. So what he wanted to do was, Joy was like, look, why does my NFT have to be one file? Why can't it just be like as many files as I want it to be? And in Joy's case, you know, he has these 3D images, uh, creations uh, that he's that that he wants to persist across the metaverse. So right now, in a lot of cases, we have to hang a picture of his 3D creation on our virtual walls. So that's like a, a JPEG or a GIF. But he also has a, a GLB file, which is a 3D file, and a USDZ file, which is a 3D file, and a Vox file for voxelized 3D. And he wanted to be able to include all of these files on his NFT um, so that depending on which experience you were in, you're able to leverage uh, that specific file. So that's what we made for him. And now his files, uh, there's like five or six file types associated with every joy toy. And the cool thing is, is he was also like, hey, guys, I want to be able to add more files over time because we don't know where this is going. Um, so we just made it so you could add more files over time. Um, and this is all information that's stored on chain, um, but it's also, so it's immutable information, but the token itself becomes mutable under certain circumstances. You can actually update um, the information and in Joy's case, you can add a new file to it. This is a really important point, right? So, you know, the idea that, and, and so this is, this is his token or his smart contract, he controls it, he can update it, and this allows for a form of kind of um, direct... You can't delete anything, but he can add to okay. it. Okay. And so that kind of allows for a direct to create a relationship between him and his audience, right? It's unmediated, and he, he as a creator is in control of that. And I think this is really important because what a lot of people don't fully understand is they kind of think an nft is like a one hit right you, you you create it you sell it that's it maybe you create a new one but actually the kind of more native creators in the space understand the creation of nft as a beginning of a conversation and because of all the things that we mentioned the composability because if they do it through their own smart contract um, they can upgrade or add features add utility um, and therefore value to the token. And so a lot of collectors e either will only buy from a creator's you know, smart contract directly, uh, or at least they'll kind of put a premium on it, right? Absolutely. Um, it, it definitely matters uh, where the token is created as far as some collectors like myself, whether or not they'll even interact with it. Um, but but yeah, so, so that's what Joy... One of the main things Joy's wanted to do, he also wanted to be able to split royalties um, at the point of sale with creators, and he wanted to be able to split uh, royalties with creators after the point of sale. So the on-chain royalty was really important to Joy. Um, he also wanted to be able to share uh, some sales with uh, current NFT owners. So he had us build in a mechanism where if uh, he can say, if you own Joy Toy number nine, which I happen to own, and he hasn't done this, but he's done it with other Joy Toys, not my own. If you own Joy Toy number nine and it has a Joy Toy associated with it, then you will receive a percentage of the primary sale. And we've seen this happen with a couple of his sales now where the uh, buyer of the original Joy actually uh, received more money in royalties from the Joy Toy sale that they were incentivized on than they paid for the Joy itself. So he's created like a value loop 
potentially for his uh, existing collectors. Um, anyways, I don't know if I explained that very clearly, but no, yeah, that, that was useful. You own the, you own a joy NFT. You have the opportunity to be involved in a collaboration on a joy toy and share in some of those profits. Cause he believes that since the, the inspiration for the joy toy came from the joy itself, that the current owner of that should benefit from it. Yeah. And the thing is here that again, it makes this less of a one-off thing and it, it turns the NFT almost into a, a, um, an atomic unit of community, right? Because if the community can participate in different ways in value creation, the characteristics of those types of NFTs are more similar to what we see in kind of the, the communities that form around fungible tokens, right? Um, so, so let's talk about how all of this then comes together into this minting platform you're building. I believe there are three layers, right? You've got the blockchain layer, the token layer, and the app layer. Could you talk us through that stack? Sure. Um, so I think the most important thing to recognize here is that what we're doing today is different than what everything will look like tomorrow because the space is evolving so quickly. Um, right now, today, our minting platform is built on Ethereum and, and it will, we love Ethereum. We think that NFTs are, uh, have a great home on Ethereum, um, but we're also agnostic to blockchains in the long run. We believe that any blockchain that has a good uh, community and network built into it is a potential place for NFTs uh, to live. Um, so we're not going to just build on Ethereum, although we haven't focused uh, on any layer two solution specifically yet. Um, I do find that to be a bit of a distraction for NFTs since you have to create the NFT in both places. So you don't really get much actual efficiency gain there. You're just sticking the NFTs on a different blockchain. But what we're doing is we're going to leverage the entire block stack as it evolves. We'll use Flow, we'll use Wax, we'll use Arweave. Um, we will use layer twos, just probably not for the ownership layer. So we're really just looking at all the blockchains that exist rather than looking at them as individual blockchains. We're looking at as a, as a full stack in itself that we can leverage a technology stack in itself. So that's the blockchain layer. And then at the token layer, um, at the smart contract layer, again, we're trying to think um, to, uh, about an agnostic system that allows you to leverage um, any of these blockchains for different uh, purposes for your token. Um, so the blockchain itself just becomes a behavior that you would basically build into the token design. Um, and other behaviors could be things like uh, Bosun Protocol, which does physical item redemption, or it could be Chainlink, which does random number generation. Um, and it could be a lot of other elements like a bonding curve or farming uh, tokens, you can build in really any of these features that people are building an entire pl platforms off of just become, you know, small behaviors in our system that are programmable. So at that middle layer, you basically have a fully programmable NFT token that can now persist across um, any appropriate blockchain that the creator wants. And then above that, you have the app layer, um, where you basically have kind of that Shopify type experience. And you can also build in many different uh, uh, user experience interactions from there, like what, your, what type of uh, sales you want to run, if you want to do like a Dutch auction, or if you want to do an English auction, if you want to do open drops, you can decide what kind of theme you want to put um, on your marketplace. You can deploy these marketplaces on your own website, and there'll be a multitude of third-party options there, such as what wallets you want to deploy with, if you want to have a custodial option, uh, your cash on-ramps, um, and uh, many other customizable experiences that should make you improve your user experience. So what we've really tried to create is a white label minting platform that brands and businesses can come in and leverage to build the exact NFT experience that they want. Now, we still need to solve a lot of these scalability issues and everything else, but by looking at the blockchain uh, layer as an entire technology stack, I actually think a lot of the scale um, that people are searching for today exists once you start to leverage the different parts of the um, different blockchains where where they uh, make the most sense. 
Now, of course, um, this also extends to other platforms, right? So all platforms on the spectrum that, spectrum that you mentioned earlier can begin to leverage this. And that just allows them to then focus on building great marketplaces, right? Yeah, they, like basically we're trying to be the, uh, a great NFT issuance layer. And we believe that like these marketplaces uh, are amazing places to interact with NFTs. Um, but we want to allow them to focus on creating amazing interactive experiences for buying and selling and trading NFTs. And we don't think they should have to worry about issuing tokens when they can't be the best at that. You know, I mean, one of the biggest things, lessons I've ever learned in business is, you know, go be, go do what you can be the best at in the world. And it, you can either be an excellent minting platform or you can be an excellent marketplace, but you can't be both. So, you know, focus on being what you can be the best at and uh, we'll take care of the minting. So I've heard some of your team use the term, you're kind of like becoming the Unreal Engine for NFTs. And I know you're at great pains to make people understand that this isn't just about art, right? It isn't just about generative art, um, that the range of use cases that a minting platform can support at kind of the issuance layer is is really broad. And I think that's kind of demonstrated by this round that you've just done. Um, I think this is where you're probably announcing it, actually, depending on when podcast is released. It's always good to get some alpha. But so, so maybe talk us through this round. It's very strategic. You kept, kept it quiet for a while, despite a lot of announcements coming out um, in the wide NFT space. Could you talk us through each kind of investor and and how and their strategic importance to your kind of roadmap. Yes, sure. So yeah, at the as you are well aware, Jamie, uh, at the end of February, uh, we closed a uh, nice round with an amazing group of folks uh, led by uh, Gaio Siri and Ashton Kutcher at Sound Ventures. We also um, ha- had the uh, privilege of partnering up with. Uh, Mark Cuban, uh, Mark Benioff, Mike Rapino, uh, Nick Adler, who's Snoop Dogg's brand manager, and Sean Neff, uh, who previously started Neffware and Sunbombs, and then uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, part of Vaynerchuk Media. Um, him and AJ have uh, invested in us there as well. So, like you said, all very strategic um, investors who the focus of their businesses that they've built and run is very much at the enterprise level. Um, so you have Salesforce, uh, Live Nation, Ticketmaster, and the other brands that I mentioned. Those, the creators of those businesses have obviously recognized that NFTs could play a big part in the future and have started to make some bets across the ecosystem. And I believe we are one of their first ones. Um, so I'm incredibly excited about them and the support that I've received from them so far. And that uh, they've helped, uh, along with you, Jamie, have helped me recognize the opportunity across the enterprise ecosystem that I thought would take several more years to get here. But there are definitely a multitude of opportunities emerging across the enterprise ecosystem. As you've kind of hinted at a couple times in this podcast, there are a ton of uh, use cases for NFTs that have yet to be explored. And it's not all about direct ownership and uh, pictures of things. Um, it can be about access. It can be about identity, which are two kind of related things, but it doesn't have to be, the two don't have to be directly connected. It can be about records management and it can be uh, about uh, direct engagement with your customers. It can be about a lot of different things. And so right now what we're starting to see is that the enterprise customers are starting to explore what NFTs look like. Uh, trying to understand how they can use them and where the technology stack is um, in its maturity level. Because typically in enterprise software, the way the cycle happens, typically that you first have consumer products that were then hardened for enterprise. Um, the interesting thing here is, is we're going to see this, this technology hardened for enterprise as it's still being developed for consumer applications as well, because it is that valuable of a layer of the new internet that we're calling the open metaverse, that it's worth putting resource towards uh, developing. Like brands are not having, brands and and large companies are not having an issue seeing the potential value of this technology layer. And that's been one of the most delightful things for me is 
uh, I've gone through the last few months is just having the opportunity to ideate around the future of NFTs uh, with so many amazing individuals. Yeah, and I think, you know, this circles all the way back to your original background in an enterprise context and, you know, working on change management, you know, as I alluded to, the idea that NFTs are increasingly going to be things that are going to have to be workflowed and managed in the billions um, by lots of different people in, you know, within organizations, across organizations. Um, and so that kind of workflow, NFT workflow is going to become absolutely critical. And I imagine as, you know, greater value IP begins to be wrapped up in these NFTs, people are going to pay more attention to uh, a lot of the, a lot of the principles that I think you've done a really great job of articulating here, and um, I'll just say you know it's been a pleasure working with you and the team. I think you closed your round that you weren't even fully trying to raise for within like your third week of the accelerator. Bearing in mind it's a three month program, uh, and we probably don't have time for it now. But I remember uh, getting a, a screenshot from you. Um, after a, a call on a Saturday, a Zoom call, and it had like, you know, a full kind of Hollywood lineup on there. Um, so you've given me great uh, entertainment uh, going through your, your funding round. Um, so, Jimmy, look, it's been a pleasure having you on. How can people, you know, follow you guys, as you say? You know, a lot of the stuff you've been doing with Avastars has been financing this ecosystem. I believe you've got a big NFT conference being planned. Can you tell us? all the different bits around the ecosystem you've got going on and how people can get involved. Sure. Uh, well, uh, I think probably people will have seen, or by the time this is released, people will have seen our first drop, which should be uh, Nian Cat uh, and Snoop uh, dropping next week on 419 going into 420. So that'll be a fun drop. Um, so that was us. And uh, we'll have something big coming up in the beginning of May with uh, a launch partner, our first big launch partner. And then um, if you want to keep track of us, you can follow NFT42 at NFT42 underscore on Twitter. Um, or you could follow our newsletter, our token smart newsletter at nft.substack.com. And if you wanted to join our token smart community, that's like a central hub, a good kicking off point for NFTs in general. Uh, you could join us there at discord.gg forward slash NFT. And I just want to throw out there, you mentioned it earlier. Uh, but we are having a conference next year, next March, the 22nd through the 24th in uh, the glorious and fabulous Las Vegas um, for NFTs. It's going to be completely off the hook where we can have up to 5,000 people uh, at the event. So I really hope that a lot of people um, are able to come and meet with us there when that's going to be our flagship event next year. And you'll be able to meet everybody at nft42 and hopefully most of the ecosystem oh my god that'll be my first trip to vegas and uh, yes what what better than for it to be an nft conference hosted by the people behind um nft42 and token smart awesome stuff jim thanks for coming on thank you jamie really appreciate it if you enjoyed today's podcast please make sure you subscribe rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of web3 Thank you.